Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. How should Christians think about controversial issues like transgenderism or homosexuality or euthanasia and abortion? What does the Christian worldview have to offer here? I'm really excited to have back on our podcast, Nancy Piercy. We've already talked about her excellent book, Finding Truth, in another episode. And today we get to talk about her latest book, Love Thy Body, Hard Questions About Life and sexuality. Now, before I get over to Nancy, she is at um, Houston Baptist University. She's a professor and scholar in residence there. She's the author of several books, Total Truth, which is an amazing foundational book, Finding Truth, Saving Leonardo, and then the book that we're going to talk about today, which is Love Thy Body, and such a great shaping intellectual force today, especially among Christian thought and worldview and, and has a heart for the next generation. So Nancy, thanks so much for coming back to the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. Well, great. Like I said, we've had you on before, and I've already kind of shared how influential you've been in my own story and journey and in caring about worldview issues. But why don't you just kind of give us a quick kind of snapshot in, into how you became interested in these kind of questions in general and maybe a little bit of your faith journey along the way in terms of how you came to be a follower of Jesus and how those kind of intersected. Oh, right. They intersected, absolutely, because I was raised in a Christian home, but I started asking questions when I was about midway through high school. And I have to tell you, Jonathan, it was nothing very earth-shaking. I just wanted to know, how do we know Christianity is true? I didn't have any Christian friends. I was going to a secular public high school, and all my friends are secular, all my teachers, all my books, everything is secular. And I just started wondering, how do we even know that Christianity is true. And unfortunately, there weren't any apologetics back then. And the kind of answer I got, I'll, I'll give you just one example of the kind of answer I got. I talked to a Christian college professor, and I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. Oh, no. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's it? That's all we got? <laughs> and, that's right. And that's the kind of response I got from, from pastors and, and parents and anyone that I talked to. And I decided... Christianity must not have any rational basis. And like I said, I was about a junior in high school, and I decided that if, if you didn't have good reasons for something, you really shouldn't say you believe it, that I was believing or holding on to Christianity, mostly out of respect for my parents and my family. And that's not a good enough reason. I had a Jewish friend who was Jewish for the same reason, and so I realized that's not enough. And I started very consciously, I set aside my Christian upbringing and started very intentionally looking for what is truth. I decided it must be up to me since I couldn't find any adults to answer my questions. And at that time, I started walking down the hallway to the library in the public high school I attended and started pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, if I can't get any live people to talk to me, maybe these dead guys can help me through this because isn't that what philosophers are supposed to do? They're supposed <laughs> to tell you what is truth. And how do we know it? And is there meaning to life? And is there a foundation for ethics? Or is it just a matter of, you know, what's true for me, what's true for you? So I pretty rapidly went into skepticism and relativism. In other words, I was the one in my high school group who was arguing, you can't say anything's right or wrong. How do you presume to know an absolute basis for ethics? 
I didn't even think you could have a basis for knowledge because if all I have is my puny brain in the vast scope of time and history, how reasonable is it to think I can know some kind of universal or absolute truth? Obviously ridiculous. Mm. So it was several years later that I ended up at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And that was the first time I ever encountered any sort of apologetics. And I was floored. I was absolutely astonished to find out there actually are good reasons and arguments supporting Christianity. And so it was the worldview apologetics that Schaefer taught that really made Christianity make sense to me. And it is, so it was a huge part of my conversion. And that's why ever since then, I've had a real heart for young people going through the same questioning that I went through, who are wondering, how do we know Christianity is true? Are there good reasons for this? Ever since all my writing, all my books address the same question. How can we speak more effectively to young people with their questions? And then, of course, Love Thy Body takes it into the more current issues of transgenderism, homosexuality, and so on, giving people a, a deeper understanding of not just the rules, but the reasons for the rules. That's where Christian worldview comes in. It's giving young people the reasons behind the rules. That's, that's so helpful to kind of hear your story and how that shaped you in your own journey, and then even how God is using you now to equip and prepare the next generation and help people who care about them, which we're so grateful for as well. And so one of the questions, before we get to some of the particular answers on these topics and how to talk about them, one of the tools that you talk a lot about is understanding the fact and value split. And it'd probably be really helpful for our listeners if you kind of unpack that a little bit as a category and how that is affecting people and even how they approach these questions today. Right. This was one of the things that I struggled with when I went to Labrie and studied under Francis Schaeffer. Um, I was such a relativist, that is, I didn't think there was any absolute truth, that I had to go through sort of a two-step process. Schaeffer used to call it pre-evangelism. He said you sometimes have to dismantle a person's non-Christian worldview before you can really give them the gospel. And that was true in my case, especially on the question of truth. I had to first be convinced that there was such a thing as truth before I could even consider whether Christianity is that truth. There are many people today who think that truth is available only in the area of science and facts and empirical investigation. And the reason for that is that ever since the scientific revolution, many people decided that the only reliable form of knowledge is what you can see here weigh and measure what you can know empirically. Well, what does that mean then for a theological knowledge or moral truth? Well, they're not something that you can study under a microscope. They, they can't be stuffed into a, a test tube. And so many people concluded that morality and theology, religion, these things are not really truths anymore. They're just personal preference, personal feelings. So the concept of truth itself has been split in half. Many people think you can have reliable knowledge only of the natural order, but they don't think you can have knowledge of the moral order. That's what people mean when they talk about the fact-value split, that we have truth has been split into the realm of values and the realm of facts, and near the twain shall meet. And so that's why it's so important for us to understand the concept of truth itself, because I find if you are talking to a non-Christian and you say Christianity is true, they no longer even have the same concept of truth that you have. 
And so it's like talking a foreign language. We're called to be missionaries and learn the language of the people we're talking to. Even if they still speak English, they may be using words in a different way. And the biggest example of that is the concept of truth itself. I think that's so helpful because sometimes in our culture, which has really discipled people in the next generation to kind of approach life as how you feel determines what's real, or you do you, or you know, follow your heart and you can't be wrong, those kind of things, when the concept of truth or, hey, this is what's morally good or not, it's, it's encoded with all of those little relativistic assumptions that they have operating in the background. So it's really important to understand that that's where most people, as a default, are coming from. But what I want to do is talk about why this title, the Love Thy Body, and what are you trying to get at when you talk about, you use different phrases about the hostility that's kind of seen in our culture towards the body and biology today and different things. So talk about why it is that you decided to write this book now and even the title you chose. Right. The title is Love Thy Body, and it's supposed to communicate the idea that Christianity actually has a much higher view of the dignity and value of the human body. The Christian ethic, many people think, is very negative, right? Because they tend to associate it with, don't do it, it's a sin, it's wrong, all the thou shalt nots. But in fact, if you compare the Christian ethic with a secular ethic, you'll find that it actually rests on a very high view of the body, of the value and dignity of the human body. The most obvious example is the transgender debate, which is the biggest one being battled out right now. And it's even evident in the language that the transgender activists use. After all, they say explicitly that gender has nothing to do with biological sex, that your biological sex is not part of your authentic self, and that you don't take your body into account in deciding your identity. There's a BBC documentary on the subject that says the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. And in that war, of course, it's the mind that wins. The body means nothing. And so as a result, kids down to kindergarten today are being taught that their body is irrelevant to their identity. It was just incredibly demeaning to the body. Mm. And that's where we should start when we talk to them. We should help them to see that they've accepted a very low view, a disrespectful view of the body, and that the solution actually is to have a higher view. There's a 14-year-old girl who uh, was interviewed on a very secular liberal website, and she had been a trans boy. She had actually identified as a boy for three years, from age 11 to age 14. And then she had reclaimed her identity as a girl. And in this interview, she said, the turning point came, and this is a quote, when I realized it's not conversion therapy, to learn to love your body. <laughs> the interview came out after my book had already been published, but it would have been a great quote for a book entitled Love Thy Body. Mm-hmm. Even secular people are starting to see, as she put it elsewhere in the interview, she said, transgenderism is based on body hatred. So even secular people are starting to see this with the transgender movement. Now, that, that's really helpful context, and I really appreciate you sharing that story as well. And we'll come back around to what does it look like to really uh, be compassionate for people who do struggle in these ways, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was kind of a – there is kind of respond to kind of a, a quote that you wrote in your book. It says, the problem is that many people treat morality as a list of rules, but in reality, 
Every moral system rests on a worldview, and every decision we make, we are not just deciding what we want to do, we are expressing our view of the purpose of human life. Talk about why it is that you phrased it that way and what you were trying to get at. I think even Christians have lost this wider insight, and, and partly that's because we've lost touch with our own heritage. You know, when Christianity started out in the early church, it was surrounded by philosophies that had a low view of the body, just like modern secularism does, though for di- very different reasons. The early church was facing a culture shaped by Platonism and Gnosticism that taught that the body is the prison house of the soul. That was a common phrase. They even taught that the world was created not by a good God, but by an evil God, a low-level deity, because after all, no self-respecting God would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. So in this context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary, because it taught that it was a good God. It was the supreme deity who created this world, and therefore the material world is intrinsically good, and the fall does not negate that. The fall mars or damages the good world, but it doesn't deny its essential goodness. Of course, an even greater scandal, historically speaking, was the Incarnation. That was the idea that that same supreme deity had entered into the material world and taken on a physical body. So the Incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the body. And at the end of time, what, what is God going to do? He's not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake. And he's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heaven and a new earth. And you and I will live on that new earth in renewed bodies. That's why the Apostles' Creed from the beginning has affirmed the resurrection of the body. So this is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. I guarantee you there is nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. And so... My book, Love Thy Body, gives people the tools to go beyond a negative message, which is true, but it's, not, it's incomplete. And it teaches you how to deploy positive arguments to show that a biblical ethic is actually more appealing and more attractive than the secular ethic. No, that's, that's really, really helpful. Um, what I want to do here is, is let's just pretend through a thought experiment that you were transported magically back to a freshman you know, college classroom or a high school senior kind of classroom, and some of the, one of the teachers threw out this slogan, how might you coach a young person to respond or think about if, if you encountered a question like, well, look, gender is just a social construction. That's all it is. How would you begin to uh, engage a question or a claim like that? I think I would help people see that that's really very, again, it's denigrating the physical body. It's denigrating the physical world. You know, this is so ironic, Jonathan, because people tend to think it's Christianity that has a low view of this world, right? That we're otherworldly, mm-hmm. that this world doesn't matter, that this world is maybe even intrinsically sinful just by being physical. And it's actually the opposite. Today, it's the secular person who's saying, who cares about the body? The body is just a social construction. And it's Christians who are saying, wait a minute, what about science? What about biology? What about physical facts? And it's, Christians have, and I think this is good because Christians do have a basis for arguing that the physical world has value and is, is meant to inform our identity. It does have a purpose, and we are meant to recognize that purpose. Let me give you an example from, um, there's an 
outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia. And she's a fairly well-known public intellectual. And she's a fascinating person because even though she's a lesbian and a feminist, she disagrees with the idea that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. So then you say, fine, how does she defend lesbianism then? Well, what she says is, and this is her word, she says, why not defy nature? She writes, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So what's the deeper assumption here? Fate, not God, has given us our bodies. In other words, our bodies are the product of mindless material forces. They have no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. They have no moral message for us. They tell us nothing about our identity. So again, do you see that this is a very low view, a very disrespectful view of nature and the body? It's Christianity that says, no, nature was created for a purpose. And scientifically, we know that. It's evident to observation that living things are structured for a purpose, that eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, wings are made for flying, and fins are made for swimming. In fact, the development of the entire organism is driven by an inbuilt genetic plan or blueprint. And so what Christians are saying is, when we live in harmony with that plan, that blueprint, that purpose, we're going to be happier and healthier. And so this is where the worldview enters in. Is the body the product of blind material forces and therefore tells us nothing about who we are? Or is it the product of a loving creator? And therefore, it reflects his purpose, and that's where we get our identity. No, I think that's that's extremely helpful and a great way to frame that conversation. And just as a follow-up, in, in that case, you know, the question might come back to you if somebody has done a little reading or thinking or if a professor is trying to be to really put people on their heels. Well, look, I mean, that's that's maybe all well and good, but what about, say, intersex people? Doesn't their existence disprove this male and female binary that you're talking about? What would you say in response to an objection or a claim like that? Right. Uh, first of all, intersex people, it's not a matter of gender. It's a matter of actual biological sex. They do have various kinds of anomalies because of genetic and hormonal imbalances or malfunctioning. So it's not a question of gender. Uh, transgenderism, transgender people are c- completely healthy and normal in terms of their genetics, their genitals, etc. They are completely normal. But intersex people, besides being a very small uh, population, actually have real genuine physical anomalies. And most of them are not trying to deconstruct the gender binary. Most intersex people are happy to identify with either male or female. When I was writing Love Thy Body, I was actually contacted by an intersex person. And what she said was this. This was really touching. She said, how do you think it feels being a pawn in someone else's game? It hurts to be shoved into the LGBT camp by either side. Mm. And that's how I feel like the, the transgender movement is currently using intersex people. They're using them as, as, a, as a political pawn to advance their agenda. But they don't really deconstruct the gender binary. First of all, purely medically speaking, doctors can tell 
whether it's a male with certain genetic anomalies or a female with genetic anomalies. There are very, very, very few who actually are not, the doctors are, have a hard time figuring out. So even intersex people usually fall on one side or the other, and they're happy to do so. That's very helpful. That's a very helpful conversation because I know sometimes that's thrown out um, as, as a counterexample, and it's so important to realize first that these are real people that are being kind of used in certain ways in the argument, but second, it doesn't, doesn't follow and doesn't prove the point in the argument that's actually trying to be made there. But you've already hinted at this in some ways, so how would you advise people, since you've studied and thought a lot about this issue, how do we be compassionate then who do struggle with, say, not being at home in their own body as a male or as a female? What does true compassion look like informed by a biblical worldview and what the church could and should be doing? I remember there's a you, you put it this way, you said, even as churches clearly communicate the moral truths of Scripture, they must also become places of refuge for victims of the sexual revolution who have been hurt by its lies. But what does that look like to truly be compassionate in this, in this moment? Well, let me give you an example. My chapter in Love Thy Body on transgenderism starts with a story, a true story of a young boy that I knew and have known for many years who clearly had gender dysphoria from a young age. Before he was even walking, his babysitter said to his mother, he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant he was quiet and compliant and gentle, and the things we stereotypically associate with girls. In preschool, when his mother picked him up from preschool, every day he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. And by elementary school, he was coming to his parents frequently with tears and saying, I think the way girls do, I feel the way girls do, God should have made me a girl. By age 14, he was scouring the Internet for information on sex change therapy. Fortunately, he decided it would not give him what he wanted. It would not make him a girl. There's a very famous TED Talk by a cardiologist in which she says, every cell has a sex. Every cell has a sex. And surgery doesn't change every cell in your body. So there's no way you can make a boy into a girl. But the question is, what did his parents do all this time? His parents, first of all, made it clear to him that they loved him the way he was. They did not try to toughen him up or make him more stereotypically masculine. I have heard of many parents who do try that. It usually doesn't work. They let him know that they were happy to have a boy who was gentle, sensitive, and emotional. But he could be a boy still, so that was perfectly fine, that God had perhaps equipped him for one of the caring professions, like psychologist or counselor, healthcare worker. And of course, it's perfectly possible and acceptable for a girl to be gender nonconforming as well, to be more assertive, irrational, take charge than is typical of the stereotypes. They took him through personality tests like the Myers-Briggs personality test to show him that both men and women can be on the full spectrum of personality types. They even took him through my book, Total Truth. I have a chapter there, chapter 12, on the historicity of the concepts of masculinity and femininity and how they've changed over time so that what they told him is you don't have to be constrained by whatever the current definitions of masculinity are, because they they do change historically from culture to culture. So they made a point of telling him he was okay the way he was. And 
I have to tell you, these things are very intractable. It's still not easy. He's now he's uh, what he's in his twenties and he's graduated from college, and still doesn't. It feels like a misfit. And so that's why I say that Christian churches should have their eye out for non-gender conforming children. Studies have found that the most reliable correlation of non-heterosexual identity in adulthood, that is, identifying as either homosexual or transgender, the most reliable correlate is non-gender conforming behavior in childhood. Far more reliable than any genetic link far more reliable than any social link. It's just kids who are non-gender conforming. In other words, kids whose traits don't fit the stereotypes. So the church should be reaching out to those children, knowing that in our day, they are going to be targeted. They are going to be pressured. They're going to be made to feel, if you don't fit the stereotypes, you're either gay or you're trans. Tremendous pressure our kids are under today. You know, if you're just a boring old normal person... You know, they're treated as a nobody. I'm quoting, actually, a college student who was a, just graduated as a major in music. And she said, she went to a state school. She said, in the arts, if you're not gay, you're treated like you're a nobody. Hmm. So in many cases, our kids are under tremendous pressure. And I think one of the first things we need to realize is parents don't realize how much pressure our kids are under on these issues today. And especially non-gender conforming young people. We need to reach out proactively and let them know that we love them, that there's a place for them in the church, that God has gifted them with their unique personality, and we support them. That is, that is extremely helpful and good advice and, and a good reminder for all of us who care about students, who care about our kids, who care about our culture, and, and, and really the call for who we should become um, as the church and the body of Christ um, as students and kids are growing up in a culture with so much pressure around these things. So I really appreciate your insights on this. My conversation today is with Nancy Piercy, and we're talking about her latest book, Love Thy Body. And there's, I mean, there's so many different topics in here. We're not going to have a chance to get to all of these, but I do want to talk about a couple more as well. And one of them you talk about is the topic of homosexuality. And you, you talk about how um, the homosexual movement claims to be about liberation but then in the end, you say it ultimately denigrates biology. And so kind of what do you mean by that? And kind of how would you advise Christians to engage in this area based on kind of what you've written in Love Thy Body? Right. It's not quite as easy to see as with the transgender movement, but it's the same basic argument. After all, think of this this way. Nobody really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, Males and females are counterparts to one another. That's the way the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So when someone adopts a same-sex identity, they are contradicting that design. Implicitly, they're saying, why should my body inform my psychological identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? We have to help people see that that is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. And in my book, Love Thy Body, I tell lots of stories, lots of anecdotes. And one of them is a young woman named Jean, who lived as a lesbian for several years. And today is married, married to a man and has two children. And she says the turning point came 
when I began to trust that God made me female for a reason. And she said, I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. And so that's what I help people see in Love Thy Body is how to use positive language like that. Honor your body. Respect your biological sex. Live in accord with the Creator's design. Live in harmony with your body. That's the language we should be using when we talk to people because then they get it. They realize that Christianity is really about loving and respecting who God made you to be. And that's helpful. And and we're gonna if Christianity really is true and the God of Christianity is the one true God who exists and we think there's good reasons for that, then we're gonna flourish when we cooperate with the way that He's designed us. And that's the most loving and compassionate thing to do is to invite people into that. In the midst of a fallen, broken world, post Genesis three and everything else, that's what we're all, you know, striving toward. And so I love how you're framing that in that kind of holistic vision, which is really helpful to remember as we talk about these particular controversial issues that our culture is talking about. Um, Another one that you talk about is uh, the topic of abortion. And a particular way you kind of get at this, you know, there's a lot, it's often said, well, look, if you're against abortion, then you're waging a war on women. But you say in your book, Love Thy Body, that abortion wages war on humanity itself. Talk about how you would frame engaging on a question around that in terms of the waging a war on women. Right. What many people don't realize is that abortion, too, is based on a low view of the body. Here's how professional bioethicists argue. Admittedly, sometimes these arguments haven't filtered down to ordinary people yet, but they will. What the professional bioethicists argue is going to filter down. So here's what they say. They say, physiologically, biologically, the fetus is human. No professional bioethicist really denies that anymore. The evidence from science and genetics and DNA is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that and say that abortion is acceptable? They say, well, the fetus is human, but to a certain point, it's not yet a person. And as long as it's merely human, well, it can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be picked through for sellable body parts like Planned Parenthood does and then tossed out with the other medical waste. In other words, merely being human is no longer enough for human rights. You have to earn the right to legal protection by becoming a person defined in terms of cognitive abilities, a certain level of uh, mental functioning, and so on. And so again, you see, it's a, they're acknowledging the fetus is human, biologically human, but they're saying that gives the fetus no rights whatsoever. Again, it's a denigration of, of their humanity, of their um, status as members of the human race. That's not enough. And of course, euthanasia is the exact same argument, just in reverse. In other words, if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person, even though you obviously still human. You didn't become a non-human. But at that point, secular bioethicists will say, you can be unplugged, your food and water discontinued, your treatment withheld, and your organs harvested. So you see on these life issues, meaning abortion and euthanasia, once again, it's the idea that just being human is not enough. This is devastating for the concept of human rights. If you do not have rights for the sheer simple fact of being human, 
then all of us are at risk because anyone could be defined as a non-person. And we've seen that historically, right? Virtually every culture has decided some group, some group was the out-group, not the in-group. And as soon as they're defined as less than human, we know what happens. They get marginalized, they get cast out, they even get put into death camps and killed. Absolutely. And, you know, in the conversation usually goes in the direction of autonomy. And it's my body and my choice rather than what does it mean to be human and who has inherent value and dignity and how should we treat those people. And so I think that's a very helpful way to get at that as well. You know, one of the, one of the common slogans you'll hear in our culture is, well, look, you know, why not just let people live however they want to, you know, not hurting anybody else? How would you encourage people to respond to kind of that slogan as that plays out? Yes. Where we were just now with abortion kind of tells you where I would go with that. It's all in how the law treats humanity. In other words, what you do and what I do doesn't matter. What matters is what gets written to the law because that affects all of us. And you cannot have a free society without pre-political rights. Pre-political rights are rights that you have prior to the state. The state doesn't create them. The state merely recognizes them. For example, the right to life. You have the right to life just because you're human. You you don't get that because the state gives it to you. You have it just because you're human. But what has abortion done? Essentially, what abortion has said, when the state legalized abortion, it ruled that some humans do not qualify as persons. They do not have a right to legal protection. So in the Roe v. Wade abortion decision in 1973, the state essentially claimed the authority to decide who has a legal right to live, regardless of whether they're biologically human or not. So the right to life is no longer a pre-political right. Today in America, legally speaking, the right to life is something that the state now confers, and some humans get it and some don't. That is an incredibly dangerous position for the state to be in. It's a huge power grab. Or let's say marriage. Marriage is a pre-political right. States don't invent it. States merely recognize it. It's based on the natural biological fact of reproduction. But the only way the state could treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex couples was to redefine marriage as something not rooted in biology but a purely emotional commitment. And that's what the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision where it legalized same-sex marriage. So what that means is the state has claimed the authority to define which relationships qualify as marriage without any regard to biology, but just basing it on emotions. Of course, you and I have lots of different emotional commitments. So the state now has claimed the right to decide which of those emotional commitments qualify as marriage. Again, a huge power grab by the state. Or parenthood. At least, parenthood is based on biology. You and your, your spouse are considered parents of your children because of biological relationship. And if you want to adopt, you have to go through a long legal process. Well, same-sex couples didn't want to go through that legal process. They wanted to be considered parents, even if they were not biologically related to their child. And in 2017, the Supreme Court gave them that as well. There's a Supreme Court decision saying that every, every same-sex couple who is married is the parent of their children without regard to biology. Well, what does that mean? 
That means the state has claimed the authority to decide who qualifies as a child's parent mm. without regard to biological relationship. And now transgenderism, same thing, right? It used to be that gender followed metaphysically from your biological sex. But the only way the law can treat a trans woman, that is someone born male, the same as a biological woman, is to decide biology doesn't matter. And to say, all that matters are your feelings. So that's why there are now laws and policies being imposed telling us who we must call he or she without regard to their biological sex. So in all of these cases, it's not just a matter of why don't you just live the way you want and let other people live the way they want. These changes are being incarnated into the law. And once the law changes, it affects all of us. And we will all be held to that standard, whether we agree with it or not. That's really helpful insight, because again, those ideas are going to get worked out in, into the law. And, and since you're a scholar who, who writes and speaks and, and teaches on this topic, I want to get your perspective um, just on this question around how are some of the cultural conversations right now about concepts like critical theory and intersectionality informing and shaping what people believe about what it means to be human or sexuality and, and that whole conversation. So there's the legal side, but then there's also this cultural pressure side around these kinds of things. I was curious what you thought about how that was shaping even people or how people are talking about that today in our culture. Totally. You're absolutely right. You've, you've put your finger on the source of it. I, I was just writing another book on the Christian perspective and different subject areas that can be useful for students when they're in, in college. But my first chapter was the math chapter, mathematics. Well, this was amazing. I got a chance to do critical theory on math. You wouldn't think there was a critical theory perspective on something like mathematics, you know, <laughs> but there is. And I found plenty of theorists writing about how math is oppressive and math is white supremacy and mathematics is used to uh, oppress minorities and so on. So critical theory is everywhere, even in places like mathematics. Critical theory is coming out of postmodernism. Postmodernism is the overall term for questions like critical theory, intersectionality, and so on. It's all coming out of postmodernism. So to simplify, let's see if we can understand postmodernism. There are two main streams in philosophy, and one of them is called analytic, and it comes out of the Enlightenment. And many of us know terms like the Enlightenment because of you know, high school history courses. And the Enlightenment came out of the scientific revolution. It was the idea that science and reason are going to give us all the answers that we need to life. And in philosophy, that's, that's called analytic. And it's, well, we just call it modernist. That's modernism. Modernism said reason and science are going to give us the answers and go, going to lead us into utopia. And most philosophers, including Christian apologists, are trained in this modernist perspective. But there's another one called postmodernism that arose out of the reaction to the Enlightenment. It arose out of romanticism. And again, that's a term many of us know from high school English courses. But what we don't realize is it became a whole uh, competing philosophical strain. And romanticism says, no, 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 we don't, we don't follow science and reason. We follow feelings and we follow our inner sense of identity and we follow the mind. The mind determines reality. And so, so much of what's coming at us, we're first encountering it in these moral issues, these sexual issues, 
many of us are encountering postmodernism really for the first time because postmodernism from the beginning has said reality is a social construction. Reality is a mental construction. The mind governs reality. What we think, you know, even science is a social construction because after all, it's what people have come up with. <laughs> even what we call a fact is a social construction. So many of us are encountering this for the first time, but it's been around since the Romantic movement. It's been a reaction to the Enlightenment, and it's been a statement of, of um, you know, anti-materialism. So in one sense, Christians will agree. We, we don't agree with materialism and the reduction of human beings to complex biochemical machines. But what the postmodernist does is fall off the horse on the other side and say, well, everything's a product of the mind, and we don't have any objective knowledge. We only have knowledge that's been filtered through our mind and through our culture. And so that's been, it's, it's been a new thing for many of us here in America because we haven't, America has not been postmodern. America has been very modernist. And so I'm glad you asked that question because it helps us to get sort of the bigger picture. It's, it's really the debate between modernism and postmodernism, between a materialist reductionist that says humans are biochemical machines and the other side, the postmodern side that says, no, no, the mind is what determines everything. And Christians, of course, are people who say, no, all of reality was created by God. And biology was created by God. Our minds are created by God. We don't make that bifurcation. Reality is a whole, and so truth is a whole. It is total truth. And we're back to the importance of a Christian worldview, the importance of seeing that God's revelation speaks to both parts, to the physical world and to the mental world. God created everything, and so his truth is our guiding standard in every area of life. That's really helpful, and I, I think that's just going to be only more and more important for Christians to maintain that commitment to total truth as we see more of the effects of postmodernism begin to play itself out at the street level in relationships and in social media and news and political campaigns and all different conversations. And so we're just going to have to be very discerning and know Scripture well and be able to look at the all of reality through that you know, creation, fall, redemption, you know, restoration framework as we try to think Christianly about all of life. It's just going to be more important than ever for us to do that so we don't fall off on one side or the other. And so thanks for your helpful comments on that. Well, just as we kind of wrap up, what, you know, if someone who read, reads your book, Love Thy Body, maybe boil it down. What's what's one thing, say a parent is listening to this right now, What what's one thing that you just would want them to make sure they would walk away with that they could begin applying right away um, in their relationships and their family? Well, the most important thing is that we're talking to our children. I hear from so many people whose children come out as come out as either homosexual or transgender and as a total shock to their parents. And I, um, there are what are called transcritical websites. These are websites that were started by parents and professionals like doctors and counselors psychologists who've come together to, to talk about why transgenderism is a problem and why it's not a good idea to be fast-tracking these young people into puberty blockers and hormones and so on. And many of them are parents whose own children came out as transgender. In every case, virtually, it was a shock to the parents. So the most important thing is to be talking to your kids the story I told of the young boy who had gender transfor, uh, gender dense, who had gender dysphoria from a young age, 
was talking to his parents and they were listening and they were counseling him and they were loving him from the beginning. And I do think if that boy, I, in the book, I called him Brandon. That's not his real name. But if Brandon had been attending a public school or if he had been born into a non-Christian family, he would be trans. No doubt about it. He has struggled mightily with this issue. And it's been very painful and very painful for everyone along with him because he didn't fit the boy stereotype, so he didn't fit in with the boys. But he wasn't a girl, so the girls didn't really accept him either in terms of, you know, intimate friendship, the kind he really wanted. So his parents stood alongside him, prayed for him, loved him, gave him support. And we need to make sure that we are alongside our kids and giving them the loving support they need. I think the vast majority of them would not end up with a, a gay or a trans identity if their parents are alongside them from the very beginning. But we have to be incredibly sensitive to our children and very open to talking to them if we're going to catch it early. And, and again, watch out especially for gender nonconforming kids. The, the scientific studies are very clear. They're the ones who are most likely to feel the pressure to identify as gay or trans. So I would say the most important thing is that you're talking to your kids so that they feel safe telling you their feelings from the very beginning. And you don't hear it years later when they suddenly come out and it's a shock. I feel so sorry for the parents who are struggling with this and who are dealing with children who are many times the children end up even cutting their parents off entirely. I know several parents where the children have cut them off entirely because their parents didn't support, didn't agree with them in claiming trans identity. So to make a short, to make a long answer short, love your kids, stay in touch with them, listen to them, make sure that they are talking to you from the very beginning so you have a chance to head it off at the pass with your loving acceptance. That's so helpful. And what I, what I appreciate this, and I, and I know our listeners can hear, is that you genuinely care for people, and these aren't just issues or academic ideas. These are having real consequences for real people, and that we need to be understanding and gracious and loving and kind as we pursue flourishing the way God's designed it in that context. And so I so appreciate the work that you've done in writing Love Thy Body. We've used it with our Impact 360 fellows here during our nine-month gap year, and it's been very helpful. And as, as a parent, maybe you're listening to this, this maybe hasn't been the most comfortable conversation talking about some of these controversial issues, but our culture is talking about it. This is upfront and in the reality of our kids day to day, and we need to think about how we're going to engage on these topics and questions before we get into them, which is why I really want to encourage you to get a copy of Love Thy Body and help your kids see the world as God sees it and then walk with them and listen to them as Nancy has shared. So Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and and all your labor and uh, study to kind of make these ideas and connections accessible. Well, thanks for having me, Jonathan. I appreciate it. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.